to understand, I want to be frank and open with God, with myself, and with you. So I will continue to ask questions and hope that they will mature in you and that you will find answers which perhaps I have not yet found and may, may never find. You probably remember or possibly remember that last time I said to you that the beginning of Genesis can be seen either in the habitual way which is taught in the catechesis and the school and the theological schools concerning the fall of men and that the scheme hurt me very much because it raised a question that was insoluble for me. If God had planted in the garden even, that is, in the place of fellowship, peace, mutual love between God and man and between Adam and Eve, not only the tree of life that would give them eternal life through communion with life divine, but also another tree, a tree of knowledge that uh, had within itself the power not only to reveal the meaning of things, but also to lead the newly created couple astray unto death. And my question has always been, for some time rather than always, how could it be? Doesn't it make God himself responsible both for the fall and for the appalling consequences of it? The fall meaning the breaking up of the human couple to this who will come back. The breaking up of all the harmony and structure of the created world. Death coming upon not only the humans, but all existing beings. A total destruction. Could it be possible, and this I could not accept, that God had created death and planted it right in the middle of the garden of life. And that this tree of death produced fruits that were beautiful to see and attractive. And also that into this garden could come an angel of death, one of the fallen angels. For a long time, it was a real serious problem. And then I came upon a quotation which I have already quoted to you 
And I'm, if, I'm sorry if I repeat myself, but I want you to understand how acute the problem is for me. A quotation of Saint Irenaeus of Lyon, in which he said that apart from the tree of life, which meant direct communion with God, feeding on all that God could give, and eventually all that God was, because he wanted us so to commune with him as to become partakers of the divine nature. There was this second tree, the tree of knowledge. And this tree of knowledge was not a tree of death, but an alternative way for humanity and the created world to find its fulfillment, its completion, and ultimately its total communion with God. But this meant that mankind, and as a result of it, the whole created world would have to walk a long, long way of searching to find step by step the truth about God and enter into an ever deeper communion of understanding and communion of life with him. I'll give you a quick example or an image by saying that in our limited world we can know a person through the fruits of his thinking or of his activities. I give an example that if you look at a variety of icons, although they represent the same Lord Jesus Christ and the Mother of God and the saints, the hand that painting them is different and you could say this icon is Theophan the Greek. This icon is Leonidus Piansky. This icon is Rublov. This icon is Father Gregory Krug, etc. It does not mean that they are untrue to the basic subject, but it means that each of them communed with God, received a knowledge of God through this, in this communion, and projected it on canvas or on wood. And each of them has something absolutely true to say, but it is true as seen by a given painter. It does mean that each of them is incomplete in the sense that none of them 
is the true image of Christ, of the Mother of God, of one or another saint. And that is quite obvious, because it is only the person, himself or herself, who is the true image of the self. And in that respect, there is something analogous that we think of our of Christ in his incarnation. We paint icons that are vastly different from one another, and none of them is an adequate similitude of Christ himself. Each of them represents Christ as I see him, Christ as I know him. And it is a wonderful thing that we have not got a photographic image of Christ that would give us an extremely momentary and limited vision of what he looked and made him a stranger to anyone knowing him in a different manner. To use a vocabulary which is current and simple, there is the Russian Christ and the Greek Christ and the English Christ, but there is also the black Christ and the Chinese Christ, because each nation, when they wanted to represent their God, become men. God in the flesh could represent him only in the features of his own nation. Otherwise, this God incarnate would have been a stranger, an alien, have nothing really to do with the people whom he had come to save in one region or another. It is something which I believe is of great importance for us to remember, that we have not got a portrait of Christ as he was. He was the universal man. Yes, he had temporary human features, but these features changed, as it were, in the eyes of those who looked at him. I have seen icons of Christ, of the Mother of God, painted by black believers. They were Christ, but they were Negroes. I have seen the same thing happening with icons of Christ painted by Chinese or Japanese icon painters. It was Christ on each occasion, but in features that everyone could recognize because he was like this 
although he was also different. I don't know whether I make myself understandable, but I think it's very important for us to realize that an icon is the vision of a given man or woman of Christ or the Mother of God or the saints which is conveyed through a person, through a direct experience or through a borrowed experience and does not claim to be an adequate image. The same is true when we speak of God. All the saints have spoken of Christ, of the Mother of God, of saints, of God altogether, and each of them, not from a different point of view, but with a different nuance, in a way that was not identical. They knew him at times as a judge because they saw him at that moment in the context of their own sinfulness and they could not see him otherwise than the judge. And then when they repented, when they changed their lives, they saw in him the merciful Savior, the one who had chosen to die for them to live. And what is true in icon painting is also true in all the ways in which we try to convey things concerning God and the spiritual life. Indeed, I could extend this thought by saying it is also true about the way in which we convey to one another what we know about a third person. How often it happens that two persons know a common friend and speaking of him or her, they discover that this person is seen in a quite different manner by the other. You must have this experience. And not because the person had treated them differently, but because the message was received in a different way. Now, if the message is received in a different way, an image has come to my mind which was given me some, some decades ago. If you look at the reflection of trees or houses, or persons in a pond or in a lake, you will see it very different at different moments. First of all, the image will be colored by the fact that the pond or the lake simultaneously reflects not only this person's face, but the sky. 
For another thing, the waters of the lake may be still, and then the features are regular and peaceful, and then little wind comes, and little waves, and the object becomes quite different. The tree is no longer what it was. The face is no longer what it was. So we must be aware of the fact that even within our experience, there are moments when we see God, his saints, the mother of God, and one another, and ourselves in a quite new and different way. And it would be untrue to say that one way of seeing is right and the other one is not. Because the object has not changed. What has changed is my perception. Due to circumstances, but due mainly to maturity and to my inner condition. Leaving aside icons and direct images, there are a variety of ways in which experience is conveyed to us. I have spoken more than once in passing about the fact that a composer starts with an inner experience which is beyond words, beyond sound, beyond any form of expression, which pervades him, fills him, changes him. And then this experience begins to take shape. And this shape is something he experiences concretely as beauty, as horror. And then he tries to convey it to others. And to do that, if he is a musician, he must use sound. And this sound will again be one step lower perhaps, or less adequate to the original than the silent, unutterable experience or the experience perceived and put into word or sound for himself. But when it is put into sound, it is for others within limits of what musical sound can do. And then eventually, this musical experience finds itself expressed on a sheet of paper in conventional science. And people approach them, seize them, the ones without any understanding, the other one with an an approximate understanding. And gradually, those who are particularly gifted, particularly capable of entering in 
communion with the original experience of the artist begin to commune with the experience itself. So that is another way in which we reach out to the understanding of God. Icons, yes, but also the music of the church. And beyond the music of the church, what we hear of the sounds of the world, the wind in the trees, I remember a psychologist touring Europe from America and asking people the same question, or rather two questions. The one was, what is silence? And the other one was, what is a tree? And I remember that being questioned myself and having given awkward answers, I turned to one of our young people here, an educated, the son of a cultured family, and said, what is a tree? And his answer baffled me. His answer was, a tree? It's wood for the kitchen. He saw nothing else in the tree. And I asked afterwards a very simple, uncultured young girl, and she smiled at me with a radiant smile and said, a tree, but it is beauty. The shape of it and the wind blowing through it and producing a whole harmony of sounds. And the rain falling and creating music. This for me is a tree. So is it also the way in which we experience God. Who is he for me, for each of us here? Is he simply a creator? Or is he the one who loved me so before I was born that he called me into existence? Is the one who watches my life ready to punish me for betraying his expectation? Or is he one who gave me the freedom to do right and wrong but has become man himself in order to die and save me. 
And this applies, I believe, to all forms of art and all forms of expression and to science. And I'll give you one more example, which probably is unexpected, both in itself and coming from someone so, well, heavy, mentally, and perceptively as I am. There is a passage in one of the great ascetics. It is either St. Ephraim of Syria or St. Isaac of Syria. I can't remember at this moment. But he says in one of his writings that the eternal occupation of the angels is the dance. When we think of the dance, you know what we think of. How could the dance be the eternal occupation? And in another passage he explains that the dance is rooted in such deep silence that it cannot find expression otherwise than in itself, but also that the, this silence can be expressed by motion, by harmony, by the beauty of motion without any interrupting noise, any interrupting thought, any interrupting words. I had this in mind, oh, that was about more than 40 years ago, when I met a Greek theologian. He had never been in Russia. He worked for the World Council of Churches, and on return from his first visit to Russia, he said to me, you know, I know now what prayer is. I was surprised because he was teaching theology. He was a man of faith, a man whom I admired for his integrity. And I said, where did you discover it? In one of the churches, one of the monasteries, or by meeting someone who is a carrier of faith and prayer? He said, no. I discovered what prayer was when I went to the ballet and saw, and saw one of the ballerinas dancing. Because there was total silence within her and this silence was expressed in perfect gesture and movement. This is a modern illustration of something that, as I mentioned it to you, was said in the sixth century of our era. 
so that even there we must be able to look for a revelation of truth. Obviously, dancing, like painting, like singing, like singing, like speaking, can be a destruction, a barrier. But in itself, there it is. It is a depth of silence that can express itself only in the harmony of a gesture. In the same way, this tree of knowledge speaks to us of the discovery of the mysteries of the created world, of a world created by God knowingly in science. Science is now developing, widening in an incredible manner. It becomes very mysterious to the non-initiated. And every decade changes it. I was trained in science. My professor of physics was Maurice Curie, the nephew of the great Curie. I should know something about physics. And I know now that I know nothing. In his last lecture, it was in 1931, I think, no, 32, Maurice Curie said to us, having just discovered one more atom for Mendeleev's table, the atom shall never be split. Because if it be split, the whole world would explode. He was one of the greatest atomic scientists of his day. So that here again, we see, see science, whether it's physics or other sciences, expanding in width and in depth and in mystery, forcing us to look at the world in which we live, shall I say, in terms of an icon, the visible revealing to us the invisible, and more often as far as science is concerned, the visible challenging us to search for the invisible, to stand before the mystery of the world and ask ourselves questions. All this is a result of this phrase of Saint Irenaeus of Lyon working in me and of the joy, the incredible elation it gives me to think 
that the tree of knowledge planted by God right in the middle of paradise was not a tree of death, was not an act of God condemning to death his creatures, but a tree that would make us commune to the whole created world for thousands of years perhaps discovering more and more and understanding perhaps less and less asking ourselves questions but no longer charging God of having placed death side by side with life and said you choose what is more attractive to you the result of it is a sense of hope a sense of faith a joy Because side by side with the knowledge which the visible world looked at by us, studied by us, communed to by us, can give us, we are not deprived of the other way of discovering God in ourselves. This is the greatest wonder. And yet, two things coincide. On the one hand, when mankind, all of us, search the created world as we can examine an icon, listen, to a piece of music, look into the beauty of the world, try to understand the mystery in scientific terms. Whenever we do that, we are at the same time searching for the living God. Not all of us, obviously. There are some who are creative artists or scientists who are totally involved in their search. But at the heart of their search, whether they know it or not, there is the original act of God that made things what they are and allowed them to unfold before us in understanding, in meaning, and in beauty. At the same time, <clears throat> the way of knowledge of God through communing with the tree of life is not taken away from us. We still 
can commune with God in prayer, in faith, in trustfulness, in faithfulness to his commands, which really are the way he advises us on our way to salvation. And I'm trying to convey to you, and I hope what I say is true,